You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm speaking with Nick Mamatas. His new book is called Sensation. It's out from PM Press. Thank you for joining me, Nick. Yeah, you're welcome. Nick, this book has a, a lot of very interesting things going on. And one of the things that's going on is a kind of a, a classic science fiction question about the humanity's history being controlled by entities from outside. But you do something literarily interesting with that. So talk about changing the writing in the first person, plural. This is not something we usually do. Well, um, it's sort of like writing omniscient third person in a way. But uh, my spiders, the the species that actually uh, helps control human history, they're, uh, you know, collective hyper-intelligent spider, um, are writing the story in the first person, plural. So they, they can be pretty much everywhere, but not quite everywhere. They can lose track of some characters, but keep close track of other characters. They can understand most of our motivations, but not quite all of them. So it's really about, uh, you can also think of it as a first contact story, where we don't even realize that we're the ones being first contacted. So that, it was, you know, it was just a way of making the story interesting to write for me, because I, I get bored writing novels, so all of my novels have some sort of weird point-of-view thing. Like it might be from Jack Kerouac's point of view, or from the point of view of an omniscient uh, child, or now a near-omniscient uh, other species. Well, talk about creating uh, the, the conflict at the core of this book between the two kinds of uh, omniscient species and how that reverberates through the uh, conflict of, in humanity. Well, I read a few years ago in a, in a magazine about uh, this kind of wasp that overposits its eggs in a kind of spider and makes the spider create a different kind of web that it normally wouldn't. And uh, the eggs hatch and consume the spider. The, the, the web is different because um, it can hold the weight of these pupating wasps. So I just use a little you know, science fictional fantasy magic to have it be that occasionally a wasp will sting a human and will, will cause uh, changes in that human being that lead to uh, immense political effects. And that, and the spiders want to control these political effects to make sure that it doesn't end up with humanity destroying the spiders. Because, of course, humans have destroyed so many species, some accidentally, some purposefully. And the spiders are sort of trying to take care of us or hurt us uh, for their own benefit. And they stink for hours. So it has a sort of a political theme as well. Well, this is a great, uh, uh, in, you know, species theme because we've been finding out more and more about how uh, various uh, creatures, there's the ants that are controlled by the parasites. There's a lot of this stuff. So talk about just doing the research for this. This must have been fun. I never haven't heard of these uh, spiders and wasps. Well, they were discovered, I think, or at least the newspaper reporting was around 2006 or so. And But I've also very been in, very interested in parasitic manipulation for a long time. Um, of course, you know, people might know about toxoplasma. They're, that's the fungus that uh, makes rats not fear cats. So they, they're, they're consumed by cats, and the, the, the fungus uh, or the parasite uh, reproduces sexually inside the cat's intestine. So it's a very complex, uh, you know, uh, three-species arrangement. And I just thought, what... Well, how much you know influence do we actually have over our own lives? You know, certainly we think we are in charge, but we're not. You know, we're we're influenced by politics, by uh, by weather. Why not by other species? Well, that makes a lot of sense. That explains the uh, top one percent. They're probably emitting some kind of toxoplasmic uh, cash attractor. <laughs> so, talk about the the using. You have some 
political points that you're interested in, in you know, discussing in your book. Talk about using science fiction to do that. Well, science fiction's always been political. Uh, I mean, people have, you know, utopian science fiction's about uh, uh, an improvement of humanity. Dystopian's about a warning. Of course, in American science fiction is heavily influenced by libertarianism. There's a lot of socialist science fiction writers. So I'm just using science fiction to talk about political movements, mostly left-wing movements, and how they may succeed or fail. And uh, it was very interesting because the two things I mention in, in the book are one, a sort of a, uh, a nameless movement that pops out of nowhere, and two, the collapse of the Internet. And as we've seen uh, this year uh, in North Africa with Egypt and Tunisia, that movements can come out of nowhere, and that uh, Egypt, for example, tried to turn off the Internet to, to keep the movement from, from, uh, from growing and from evolving. And that didn't quite work, mainly because there, was a, there are enough workarounds to uh, allow for the solidarity and for the communications between people. So it was very bizarre for me to have written this book in 2008, then in 2011, as it's coming out, see uh, elements of it come true. One of the things I think that's interesting, too, is, you know, your prose style, the, the way you, your novel is very much in, uh, uh, in the cut-and-paste mode and the uh, sample-and-hold mode, uh, both of, of music and a lot of um, modern art. So talk about uh, your, your novel looks and reads a little bit more like a work of modern art in some ways than a work of modern literature. Oh, I, I love modern art. I love collages. I love, but I think mostly the uh, what I was influenced by was the web browser, especially the tabbed web browser. If you, like anyone who's on the web all day, and if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably on the web. You might have this podcast on, and your email on, and Facebook, and the New York Times dot com, and maybe you're writing a blog post or tweeting something. So you're looking at ten, twelve things at once. And my novel, my attempt was to have that experience just in fifty thousand words. It was a very short novel, but have this omniscient narration. And things like Rolling Stone articles and New York Post articles and, and, and how those are written differently and uh, YouTube videos and, uh, and police interrogations and emails back and forth between the characters. Uh, partially, uh, admittedly, I really hate writing novels. So I, th I think to myself, I have to do 2,000 words today. I know, I'll just write an article and put it in the book. <laughs> and that was one way for me to get through the novel. But also I was trying to uh, create the experience of, of observing the political world and the aesthetic world through a web browser. In, 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 in linear prose form. Well, now that's a really interesting uh, aspect of your book. And when it strikes me, too, you've used this word a lot in this interview, observe. So there's a lot of observation going on. And uh, I'm wondering, do you, are, are you an itinerant uh, eavesdropper? And do you record stuff or write stuff down? I am an eavesdropper. I don't, I don't record things, write things down, but I have tinnitus, um, which is, you know, that ear disorder. Uh, so I can't hear very well. But when you have tinnitus, what happens is that your brain raises the volume of your ears. That is, it raises the recording volume. So I can hear things across the room or on the other side of a bus more easily than I can hear the person next to me. So I'm a, an inveterate eavesdropper. I'm always walking around town or work, hearing snippets of conversations here and there. And I've, the ones that I remember, because if, you, if I wrote them all down, I'd, I'd just not keep track of them. But the ones I remember are the good ones. And those are the ones I've integrated into stories and fiction all the time. And I'm, I don't drive either, so I'm also a great stroller. Flanur, I, I walk around cities all the time and just try to suck things in, and that's really been a huge influence on my writing style, definitely. Now, uh, I, to me, your novel sounds a little bit like an anthology of your own kind of sampling that you've edited and put together, and you're also a, a prolific editor. So talk about the influence of uh, editing on your novel and your novel on editing and your approach as a Flanur. I like that. 
Um, for me, I think it might have been more influenced by my nonfiction writing. I've written for The Village Voice, I've written for uh, general interest magazines, trade journals, and I'm interested very much in different kinds of writing. I'm not just a fiction writer. So I thought by writing this novel in the form of articles and emails and uh, open letters and, and underground zine uh, snippets that I could sort of you know, show all my chops. Here's my fiction part. Here's my nonfiction part. Here's how I'd write for a newspaper. Um, just recently, I helped a friend who works at the SFO, the San Francisco Airport, write a letter to his fellow mechanics about a bad union deal that they had just voted down and they were being castigated by the union officials. And two days later, I found that the, the letter that I had written for my friend was being quoted on the Teamsters for Democratic Union website. It was being passed around, not just to this one airport, but airports all over the country. So that was, that was really a great thing where I can strike this little letter for this guy as a favor, uh, you know, with his you know, influence, of course. And then it's, you know, part of the union movement. And uh, I guess that's the kind of thing I was aiming for. Like, you know, being the, sort of a journeyman writer, writer and writing all sorts of different things to make money and then putting it all together into, into novel form. Well, also, too, this novel sounds exactly like it minds what happened to your piece of uh, uh, writing for the mechanics in this kind of ripple effect. One, one uh, piece of writing generates another. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's, I think we've seen that all the time. Going back to Tunisia, I think, if I remember correctly, there was, a, of course, that uh, fruit stand vendor who was attacked and killed. And that sparked the provincial protests. Then later on, as the uh, movement was growing in Egypt, uh, a rapper uh, you know, was rapping about uh, the, the, the oppression there, and that rap song really took off and really influenced people and really, you know, uh, inspired people at the right time. And of course, I guess the third element would be WikiLeaks. You know, and I don't think anybody's actually read all of through all the thousands and thousands of WikiLeaks cable, but the mere existence of them and being promulgated has, has uh, led to so many issues and problems and challenges and, and you know, hopeful things for. Uh, for politics in the future. So I, I like the idea of just uh, the introduction of one little thing, that one little idea leading to these huge, chaotic, uh, almost tsunamis of, of political change. Well, you talk about tsunami. WikiLeaks strikes me as because they're so voluminous and so grand, it strikes me as an automatic source of paranoia for anybody who might be included in them because everybody says some makes their tongue slip in some way that they don't want to reveal. Everybody has private moments. And if you think those private moments might have been revealed, you've all of a sudden got more data than you could possibly go through to find. So it becomes this kind of nebulous, almost Lovecraftian paranoia. And this is a very Lovecraftian novel as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm heavily influenced by Lovecraft. It's not, it's not Lovecraftian the fact that it's about Cthulhu or anything, but it's about that sort of outsider force. Uh, but it's from the point of view of that outsider force. And what was Lovecraft was all about. He was an outsider himself in the world, and uh, it was almost like he was rooting for the monsters and rooting for these other creatures. Uh, I've sort of been criticized with this novel, with the sensation. Somebody said, that, did Nick join forces with Cthulhu? Because it seems like he's, you know, pro-totalitarian, pro-spider. And I'm not pro-spider or pro-wasp or even pro-human in this book. I'm just sort of uh, laying it all out there. And you get to choose who the hero is. Well, uh, I choose the spiders. I, I'm on their side. <laughs> <laughs> I've been speaking with Nick Mamatas. Is Mamatas? I've been speaking with Nick Mam. I've been speaking with Nick. I've been speaking with Nick Mamatas. His new novel is Sensation. It's out from PM Press. Thank you for joining me, Nick. Oh, you're welcome. Anytime. Thanks. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.